This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mamas in the room. Yes. My name is Sarah. For those of you who don't know me, my husband Josh and I are the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here if it's your first time. We're going to take a moment to pray for the mamas, but before we do, I want to tell you about your gift because I'm really excited about it. It's a good gift. Um, Usually we give like a bath bomb or a flower or something like that, but this year um, we're giving away these awesome books called Every Moment Holy. And they are liturgy books. I came across this like two years ago, I think. um, And I absolutely love mine. There's a liturgy for every moment, um, which that's a big theme of my life, practicing the presence of God, being aware of Him in your everyday mundane, like we sang about, I offer you the moment in the moments in my days. That's what this book is all about. There is a liturgy from everything uh, from changing diapers um, to washing windows to planting gardens to going on vacation to watching storm rolls in um, to spotting like this is one of my favorite things spotting like um, an animal in nature like a deer or something there's a little liturgy sunsets I mean it's beautiful morning coffee ritual it's just awesome um, so I hope that it's a blessing to you we have them for you out in the lobby and it's one per mama and mom must be present in order to receive the book. Okay, help us out with that. And I wanna pray for all the moms in the room. So if you would stand to your feet. Yeah, stand your feet. Go ahead, don't be shy, mamas. Mamas only. (laughs) Mamas only. Yeah, there we go. Sorry. Clear as kind. Clear as kind. Mamas, please stand. There you go. Um, And if you are near one of these amazing women, would you please place your hands on them and let's just bring them before the Lord today. God, we thank you for the mamas here in this room. I ask you, Lord, that you'd bless them, that you would keep them, and that you would make your face, your presence, your nature shine on them, that you would be gracious to them, Lord, whatever season of motherhood they find themselves in, that they they would find your grace there, that your grace would meet them there as they change diapers or they potty train or they're um, going through the teenage years or they're about to send their kids off to college or if they're an empty nester, if they have prodigals away from you, wherever they're at, God, I pray that you would be gracious to them and that you would give them peace, Lord. I pray that um, you would just help them to model what practicing the way of Jesus looks like. That when their kids see them, that they see Jesus. That when their kids hear them, that they hear Jesus. That when their kids think of them, that they think of Jesus, Lord. That Christ would be before them and behind them on their left and on their right, Lord. I thank you for these women just Bless them, keep them, make your face shine upon them, be gracious to them, and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, church, we are not breaking from the series. We are in week five of What Lies Beneath. So get out your Bibles, get out your Being Transformed journals. You can follow along with the notes in the app today. Um, In this series, we have been focusing on our emotional health, That is our ability to be self-aware, like really paying attention to our emotions, knowing that that's how God created us to experience emotion, paying attention to our emotions, why we're feeling, why we're feeling, what we're feeling, um, and processing that with the Lord. We're talking about our spiritual maturity that is being transformed into a disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. And we're discovering that these two things, emotional health and spiritual maturity, that they go hand in hand. Pete Scazzaro says, it's impossible to be spiritually mature, to be that disciple who does what Jesus would do while remaining emotionally immature, while remaining unaware of what's going on beneath the surface of our lives. And I know that it hasn't been the easiest series to cruise through. You know how I know? Because it's not the easiest series to preach through either. But it's been so good. It's so crucial, right? Right? 
Yeah, so crucial, yep. Um, Because unless what lies beneath the surface of our lives is exposed and transformed by the love of Jesus, we will remain emotional infants. And we talked about it in week one, how I gave the example of the, women, the woman who's been saved for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, it's more like she's just been a one-year-old Christian 22 times. And we don't want to do that. We want to grow up in Christ. So today, we are going to be talking about an inevitable aspect of life, something that we have all dealt with or will deal with something we will face, and I believe that it's one of those things that we are pretty good at hiding beneath the surface of our lives. Today, we're going to be taking an intentional look at grief and loss, at grief and loss. If you would bow your heads, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. We want you here. I pray for every person in the room especially those who, upon hearing the subject of this message, are trying to figure out how to leave, how to get out of here. God, I pray that you would strengthen us to sit under this word. We want to hear from you, Lord. I pray that as the word is, is sent forth, that there, there would just, it would just burn within us. Our hearts would burn within us, God. We'd be aware of what you're doing, what you're saying, that you'd speak to every person in the room. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, in a famous sermon on the book of Job, he said, the story of Job is the story of us all. And if you do not know the story of Job, or maybe you're like me and you rarely, if ever, find yourself, you know what sounds so fun? getting in my secret place with my Bible and my coffee and reading about how Job lost everything in one day. (laughs) Let me catch you up. Let me jog your memory on the story of Job. Job was the Elon Musk of his time. And I told this to first service. I don't even really know who Elon Musk is, but I know you guys all know that. So it makes sense to you. He was the Elon Musk of his time. He was super wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a ton of servants, and a partridge and a pear tree. He was the most influential person in the East. But Job wasn't just loaded. He was also devoted. Look at this in Job 1.1. It says, Job was a man who lived in us. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. And then the story goes on, but one day enemies invaded and they stole his oxen and donkeys and murdered his servants. Lightning struck and killed all of his sheep and all of his shepherds. There was a camel and camel driver massacre, all gone or tornado or a tornado blew through. And it, um, it blew down the house that all of his children were in and it collapsed on them and killed them. So he lost all of his wealth and all of his children on the same day. And remarkably, he didn't sin or blame God. Instead, he worshiped. But Satan was not done trying to get Job to curse God. So he sent more things. He began to strike Job's personal uh, health. He, he, he struck him with terrible sores, ulcers, and scabs from head to foot. His skin got dark and shriveled. He got infected with worms. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) His eyes were red and they were swollen. His friends hardly recognized him. Job moved outside of the city as an outcast and his marriage was falling apart. Mrs. Job preferred that Mr. Job would just curse God and die already. Would you just die already? Job experienced grief and loss on an epic scale. Now, thankfully for us, most of our grief and most of our losses, they're spread out more than they were for Job. They happen slowly and over the span of time, but they do happen. Jonathan Edwards was right. The story of Job is the story of us all because we all experience grief and loss. We lose things like our youthfulness, 
At 38 years old, I am, this is starting to become a reality. There's nothing that can stop the process of growing older. Like there is no amount of Botox or lip fillers or color kits or, or vitamins or sunscreen that can stop the process of aging. We lose our youthfulness. There's a documentary about Chris Hemsworth right now that's out and he's grieving losing his youthfulness. Like Thor is aging. That's wild to think about. Like superheroes age. We're all aging. We're all losing our youthfulness. Again, happy Mother's Day. We lose our routines and stability during times of transition. Maybe you just moved here. You're new to the state and your husband got a new job and you moved down here and you are in this place of like you're grieving the loss of your old life and your old routine and your old um, stability. Everything feels like, like uh, uh, insecure, like you don't have a good footing. You can't find your footing. Or maybe you, you have a newborn and you're in that like every, your world's turned upside down and you're grieving the loss of stability. Or maybe you just moved some elderly parents into your home and you're going through that transition, we lose our routines and our stability. We lose our dreams. I think every person in here has had a dream um, at some point or another that has come and died. We dream of making a sports team. We don't make that team. Uh, the dream of going to that college and we didn't get accepted there or finding Mr. Right by this age. Like I have a dream to be married by this age and it came and it went or, or starting that business. And then there are the earth-shattering losses, unexpected loss of a family member or friend. A child commits suicide, a spouse has an affair, going through a painful divorce, a life-threatening medical diagnosis that changes your life forever, being suddenly unemployed after the company that you've worked at for years and years suddenly has to downsize. A child being born severely handicapped, infertility, miscarriages, walking with a parent as they lose their ability to remember you. Betrayal, abuse. The story of Job is the story of us all. Loss is a fact of life. Christians are not exempt. Even totally devoted Christians that hate evil with a passion like Job will all experience loss. Small losses earth-shattering losses, and all of the losses in between. But what are we to do with the grief and with the pain that accompanies loss? In Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro, he talks about how grieving differs from family to family and from culture to culture. He points out that Americans, especially those of British ancestry, that we have a no muss, no fuss, very practical, very pragmatic way of dealing with our grief. It's like, take your three days of bereavement and get over it, right? Get over it quickly and come back to work. I think America is one of the only countries where bereavement is not mandated by the government. Like it's up to your employer if they're gonna give you time to grieve a loss. Um, this is an extreme example. And I know none of you are this practical when it comes to grieving, but maybe you know somebody who thinks the way that he mentions that this woman thought in his book. He says, why, uh, she said that she said, why would I spend $5,000 on airfare and hotel to go to my sister's funeral when she's already dead? I'm just gonna save the money. She won't know if I'm there or if I'm not there. I'm just gonna save the $5,000. That's one extreme. On the other end of the grieving spectrum in places like Italy and Greece, um, when women lose their husbands, they have traditionally worn black for the rest of their lives. Like after their husband passes away, all they will wear is black. And then there was Queen Victoria of England. When she was 42 years old, her husband Albert died and she was adamant that nothing changed. Nothing changed. She slept with his nightshirt every night. She had his sheets changed every day. She had his clothes laid out for him every day. And she had water set out for him to shave every day, even though he was not there anymore to sleep in that bed with the clean sheets or to wear those clothes or to shave his whiskers. How do you deal with loss? Are you no muss, no fuss, very practical approach? Do you remain in mourning the rest of your life like the widows in Greece? Or do you pretend that it never happened like Queen Victoria? 
In our culture, I think one of the most common ways that we deal with loss is addiction, numbing, when things get too real, when we are faced with the loss of someone or something that we love, a person, an opportunity, a dream, our health, a job, whatever it is, we find it easier to reach for numbing devices than to face the reality of what we are feeling. So what do we do? We binge Netflix. We escape to worlds that we can create, virtual worlds full of high reward and low risk. We throw ourselves into our work, become workaholics, indulge in things like pornography because we tell ourselves that we deserve a little escape and we deserve a little pleasure after the loss that we've endured. Overeating, drinking, taking pills, we look to our loved ones and expect them to be the ones that take our pain away. I'm here today to tell you, church, that there is a better way. There is a better way. Author and theologian Gerald Sitzer, he lost his mom, his wife, and his young daughter in a horrific car accident. Think about that. His wife, his mom, and his daughter, he lost them in a car accident. And he writes about how he decided not to run from the loss, but to walk directly into darkness. And in doing so, here's what he learned. The quickest way to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. It's beautiful, right? But how many know that's not generally our first instinct? Our first instinct is not to march into the darkness. Our first instinct is to tuck tail and run and chase the sun, doing whatever we need to do to protect ourselves from the pain. We go into defense mode. I cheered all throughout middle school and through high school. And one of the first chants that I learned, sideline chants that I learned went like this, defense. Hustle, defense, hustle. Say it with me. Defense, hustle. There you go. What, when Job's story becomes ours, when we're faced with loss, the loss of some, someone we love, something that we love, our flesh starts to chant that. Our flesh starts to say, defense, hustle. Defense, hustle. Defense, hurry up. Defense, hold the line. Defense, the biggest tackles, the best linemen, get out there and protect my heart so that this devastating loss does not crush me. Defense, hustle. We have defense mechanisms that go up and they go up quickly. They hustle. And I wanna share a few of those common defense mechanisms that we tend to default to when we're facing grief and loss because I believe that the Lord is calling us to lower some of those defenses so that he can address the pain in our heart and bring healing and transformation, amen? Okay, so let's look at common defense mechanisms used to protect us from pain. The first one is denial. This is when we refuse to acknowledge some painful aspect of reality. Here's an example. It's really not that big of a deal that I did not make the team that I have been training my entire life for because I've had some time to think about it and I didn't really want to be on that team anyway. This denial makes it hurt a little bit less when we can deny that it's really, it's not really what we wanted. Second defense mechanism is minimizing. This is when we admit that something is wrong. I did want to make that team, but in a way that it appears less serious than it really is. Like, hey, can you pray for me? I didn't make the team, and I'm really struggling with that. Just, just pray for me. When really our prayer request should be, hey, I didn't make the team, and I am dealing with insomnia. I'm going into like this dark place. I'm looking at pornography to try to distract myself from the pain I feel because I didn't make the team, but we minimize it. Hey, I'm just, I'm struggling a little bit. Can you pray for me? Number three is blaming others. This is when we deny responsibility for our behavior and we place the blame on someone else. Just makes it hurt a little bit less when we can say things like, I didn't make the team, but it's because the coach plays favorite and it's like political 
over there. Softens the blow a little bit when we blame someone else, right? Number four, we blame ourselves. This is when we inwardly take the fault. I didn't make the team because I didn't practice enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me enough. It's my fault that I am not a more gifted athlete. We blame ourselves. Another defense mechanism is rationalizing. This is when we offer excuses and justifications and alibis to provide an inaccurate explanation of what's really going on. I didn't make the team because I have this condition, this genetic thing, and like I have this like tendon here in my right thigh and it's a little shorter than everybody else's tendon. And so I'm not as fast as most people. I'm like vertically, I have this vertical challenge. Um, and so it's like genetics. That's why I didn't make the team. We rationalize. Number six, intellectualizing. This is when we give analysis and theories and generalities to avoid personal awareness and difficult feelings. We come up with a theory of why we shouldn't be sad and why we shouldn't have to grieve this loss. And a theory could look something like, you know, I've been thinking about it and I have no reason to be sad because I am healthy and I'm not laying in a hospital bed somewhere. And so that's my theory. I'm not gonna be sad that I didn't make the team. Number seven is distracting. This is when we change the subject or engage in humor to avoid painful realities. I didn't make the team. I didn't make the team, but it's fine because I have the best summer ever planned and I'm just going to put all of my attention onto my summer bucket list and getting everything done on that list so that I don't have to think about the fact that my heart is broken because I didn't make the team. We distract. Number eight is we become hostile because anger is a lot easier to, uh, to feel to feel into than pain is. Like it's easier to be angry than it is to be hurt. So we do things like, um, don't talk about that person, please, because he took my spot on the team and his name just infuriates me. We get anger, we get hostile. Defense, hustle. Before we even have to shout it from the sidelines of our lives, our defense mechanisms take over and they take over quickly. And we begin to rationalize and minimize and blame shift and distract anything so that we do not have to feel the pain. Write this down if you're taking notes. Maturing in Christ requires that we lower our defenses in favor of taking a good, hard look at what is true. Maturing in Christ requires that we lower our defenses in favor of taking a good hard look at what is true. Jesus said it is the truth that sets us free, not denying the truth that sets us free, not minimizing, not distracting ourselves from the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. Just about 11 years ago, I walked through one of the hardest losses in my life, I was 26 years old at the time and living in one of the sweetest seasons. I was a stay-at-home mom and that was my dream. Like ever since the fifth grade, that has been my dream to be a stay-at-home mom. I uh, used to frustrate my counselors in high school because their job is to get you to go to college, to pick a college and to go to college and to apply for a college. And I'm like, I don't wanna go to college. You're like, but you're a great student. You should go to college. I just knew college wasn't for me. I dreamed of being a stay-at-home mom. I did not dream of leading a church. I did not dream of being a pastor. I only dreamed of little olive trees planted around my table. I only dreamed of arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. I only dreamed of the disciples that God would give me to disciple. And I was living that dream and loving every minute of it. My oldest olive tree was three years old at the time. And my youngest olive tree was one year old at the time. And we found out, surprise, we were expecting another little olive tree. And we were pleasantly surprised because at this point, I didn't think that it was possible for me to get pregnant without medical intervention. But lo and behold, two lines. We were pregnant and we were ecstatic, so excited. The pregnancy was going super great. 
first trimester was a breeze, loved being pregnant. It went just like my other two pregnancies. Second trimester was off to a great start. I was 20 weeks pregnant, halfway through the pregnancy and had my little bump, just loving every minute of it. Could not wait to go to the anatomy scan to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. We show up to the doctor's office, we take our kids with us. Josh has the camera out ready to capture this moment on film. Um, but instead of finding out if we were having a boy or girl that day, we found out that the baby's heart was no longer beating, that the baby was dead. And I remember the doctor handing me a towel and covering my face with it and crying as quietly as possible as to not upset my children in the room because they had no idea what was going on. Uh, the doctor gave us a moment to try to process what we had just heard. And then he came back in and he explained that in three days, in 72 hours, that I would have to come back to the hospital and I would have to get on an elevator and take it up to the labor and delivery floor where I would deliver a stillborn baby. We walked out of the doctor, the doctor's appointment, and our oldest was wondering like why we didn't find out if it was a boy or a girl. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that the baby died. So I just told him, buddy, we thought there was gonna be a baby, but there isn't gonna be a baby. And there was a grace on him for that because at three years old, he wasn't ready to journey through the dark night of the soul. And to be honest, um, I tried to protect my own heart in the same way that I tried to protect his. I wept a lot. It was a crushing grief. And if you've never gone through the loss of, a, of an unborn child, then it's hard to wrap your mind around like why it hurts so much. Because after all, you think, you never held the baby and you, you didn't even know the baby and you didn't nurse the baby or bathe the baby. Um, but that is precisely why it is so hard because you have to face the reality of, I will never hold you. I will never nurse you. I will never bathe you. I will never sing to you. I will never rock you. I will never light candles on a birthday cake for you. And as a mom, as a woman, that's what we long to do. So it was very hard, very crushing. The first 48 hours, I was hurting like I've never hurt before. And I couldn't even really think about the delivery part. But when I realized, like in 24 hours, I've got to get in a car and I've got to show up to this appointment. It was like this scheduled appointment of the hardest night of my life. And I've got to show up. I've got to show up to that appointment. I started to get defensive and I began to try to minimize what was happening. I remember telling Josh like, maybe if I, if I just don't think of this as a baby and think of it as like something harmful, like a tumor or something that needs to be removed, that it won't be so hard. Like it's not a baby I'll never get a hold. It's not a baby I'll never get to hold. It's like something that needs to be removed from my body. I begin to minimize, I begin to intellectualize to try to come up with a theory of why I shouldn't be so sad. I mean, I already have the most perfect little boy in all of the world, and I already have the most perfect little girl in all of the world, so who am I? Like, some people aren't even able to have children, so maybe I shouldn't be so sad. Maybe I'm just being a huge baby about this. I begin to distract. Hey, bring your laptop to the hospital so that we can plan a trip to Disney while we're there. I can be thinking about the happiest place on earth, anything, to get out of the darkness and the heaviness and the pain and not have to sit in the reality of what was happening. I begin to blame. I knew that God had not done this, so maybe it was my fault. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I didn't rest enough. Maybe I wasn't taking the right vitamins. Maybe, maybe we were being careless and we shouldn't have, have, have gotten pregnant with, without medical intervention. I begin to rationalize thinking about the, the, gen, or the genetic condition that they said that the baby had and, and maybe that it would have been so hard to raise a baby with special needs. This is probably for the best. I begin to deny. I told my doctor the night of the delivery that I did not want him to tell me if the baby was a boy or if the baby was a girl 
Because if the baby was a boy or girl, then it couldn't be that tumor or that thing that I was trying to make it. If it was a boy or a girl, it was a son or a daughter. And I didn't think that my heart could handle it being a son or a daughter. And he agreed to my request. At 3 a.m., the contraction started. And by the grace of God, and I say by the grace of God because truly, truly, I had zero framework for what we're talking about today. I had zero tools for how to handle grief and loss. Grief and loss did not fit in my word of faith, blessed life context. So truly, by the grace of God, all of my defense mechanisms gave out. And I began to feel the full weight of what was happening. I began to feel the pain. Couldn't deny anything anymore. This was about to happen. And we turned our eyes to Jesus and we begin to worship him. He comes where he's wanted and we wanted him there. And as we cried out to him, he came and I'm telling you, I have seldom felt his tangible nearness like I felt that night as I pushed a lifeless baby into reality. My doctor wasn't there for the delivery. It was a nurse that was there to deliver the baby, but the doctor came in a few hours later and perhaps he forgot my request to not announce the gender of the baby. Or perhaps more likely he knew that if he didn't tell me, I would regret not knowing for the rest of my life. So he casually said something like, here's your son's footprints. And a box of mementos for you to take home. Our son, Felix. Even as I was trying to convince myself the night before the delivery that it wasn't a real baby, it's not a real baby, it's not a real baby. I had a dream that night about a little boy. And in my heart, I knew that he was ours. Do you see that God wanted me to know that it was a son? He gave me the dream. He confirmed it even after I told the doctor, I don't want to know. You know why? Because God wanted me to know. Even though God knew that grieving the loss of a son would be a lot harder than grieving the loss of a clump of cells, he wanted me to know. Because God was not aiming to protect my heart. God was aiming to heal my heart. And he knew in order for me to be properly healed that I had to grieve the loss of a son in order to experience the full force of his resurrecting power and the full force of his transforming love. He wasn't trying to protect my heart. He was trying to heal it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane he models what it looks like to embrace pain and to grieve loss. I want you to turn there with me, Matthew 26. This is such a beautiful text to just meditate on and to soak in. Jesus here, he knows that the cross is near. He knows it's coming. But you'll notice in the text, we're about to read it, that he doesn't deny, he doesn't minimize what he is feeling. He doesn't downplay the gravity of the situation, nor does he distract himself by throwing a party in order to get his mind off of what's right around the corner. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't intellectualize. We never see him having a conversation with Peter, James, and John that went something like, hey guys, I'm feeling a little anguished and I'm feeling a little distressed. I was gonna ask you to pray for me, but you know, I've come to this realization that 
who am I to be anguished and who am I to be distressed? I mean, I think we can all agree I've lived a pretty epic 33 years on this earth. I'm the only one who's walked on water. I turned water to wine. I healed all these people, fed the multitudes. I was transfigured, got to hang out with Moses and Elijah. So forget I even brought it up. I'm good. That's not what he does. He doesn't blame Judas or Abba. He doesn't blame himself. Here's what he does do. Matthew 26, 36 through 41. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray. And he repeats this going away to pray and to plead and to grieve and to ask God to take the cup of suffering from him. He repeats that process two more times that night. And then look at verses 45 through 46. Jesus says, but look, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. He didn't say, up, oh, my betrayer is here and it's getting kind of real and it's getting pretty scary and so let's run and hide. No, he says, up, oh, my betrayer is here. Up, oh, let's be going. He didn't try to run west toward the sun. He walked right into the darkness. Look, my betrayer is here. And then look at verse 50. He's talking to Judas. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. Jesus is fully embracing pain and loss, even welcoming it as friend. How is he doing this? How is this possible? It's because in the garden that night, as he pleaded with the father to take the cup of suffering from him, he also resolved that he wanted God's will to be done, not his own. He resolved that he would drink of this cup of suffering so that the world could feel the full force of his resurrection power and his transforming love. He would welcome the betrayer. He would welcome the pain, the loss, the anguish and distress as friend. My friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. What if what if we embraced grief and loss like Jesus? What if we, like Jesus said, ah, pain is here. Go ahead, do what you've come for. You think you're coming to kill me, but I know that you are just setting God's resurrection power in motion. So come on. What if we had a Romans 5 approach? Come on, make me more like Jesus. Oh, hey, pain, come on in. Do what you've come for. Build endurance in me. Produce endurance in me. God's gonna use this to produce character in me. God's gonna use this to produce hope in me. A hope that is unlike any other hope in this world. A hope that is detached from the things of the earth. A hope that doesn't disappoint Oh, hey, pain, come on in. You know what Jesus is going to do with you? You think you came to take me out, but you're just being used. You're just a pawn to set God's resurrection power in motion in my life. You're just a pawn that the Lord will use to help me know that I know that I know that I know that I know that the transforming love of Jesus is being poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit 
not sprinkled, yeah, amen, not sprinkled into my heart, but poured into my heart from the Holy Spirit. What if we embraced grief and loss like Jesus? I believe we would be living messages, living messages. Our lives are meant to preach. Our lives are meant to proclaim. What message would we be proclaiming if we embraced grief and loss like Jesus? We would be proclaiming the same message that Jesus proclaimed in John 12, 24. Suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. Suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. Turn with me to Psalm 30. Psalm 30. We need more paper Bibles in here so we could get the pages turning. Bring your paper Bible next week. Let's get that going at New Song. That sounds like a New Song thing, right? Paper Bibles. Okay, turn with me to Psalm 30. Last month in our Being Transformed journal, we read through this Psalm three different times. So hopefully it's ringing some bells. This is a psalm that David wrote for the dedication of the temple. The dedication of the temple. This is a big deal, a super, super momentous occasion. Remember, God gave David the plans for the temple, and then Solomon completed the construction of the temple, and now it's here, it's time to dedicate the temple, and David has written this song prophetically for this big, momentous Day. Okay, let's look at the song that he wrote. Psalm 30. It says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, oh, Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last. Weeping may endure through the night, but joy comes with the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. Like people are like, yes, this is awesome. Sing it out loud. God made us as secure as a mountain. Look at us. Look at this amazing day. Look at all that God has done. People are loving the song. And then they get to this verse. Then you turned away from me and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy saying, what will you gain if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have a mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. Now it's at this point where people are like super into it and then they're kind of like, ah, David, like killed joy. Like this song works better in your secret place than it does for this momentous public display of worship. Like, do this one in the privacy of your own home, but not here, not on this day. You're kind of killing the vibe. We're excited about the new temple. Can we just be excited about that? And can we not think about all of your life-threatening ordeals? Um, Can we not think about the time that you think that God turned away from you, even though we know he didn't, because... There is no shadow of turning in him, but can, can we not talk about the grave and death and how you feel shattered and crushed at, uh, on this occasion? Oftentimes here, gatherings like this, we don't want to talk about the times when we feel shattered and crushed and the times when we feel like God's face has turned from us. But David, he wants this sung out at the dedication of the temple. Let's keep reading. He says, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. It ends on a good note, right? David wanted all of those gathered on this special day to know something. He wanted them to know not every day is going to feel like this. Not every day is going to be this momentous occasion where beauty is all around and you feel like you are on the mountain secured with the favor of God. No, you will experience weeping that endures through the night. And you will have moments when you feel shattered and when you feel crushed, you will have health struggles. You will feel as if the enemy is closing in, but he also wants them to know that if you will let him, God will transform that morning into joyful 
dancing into a celebration such as this. He'll take away your clothes of mourning and clothe you with joy so that you might sing to him forever. It's all unto him. It's all for his glory. He'll transform your pain into, uh, into joy for him, for his glory. I wanna look at two key texts in that Psalm again. Verse five says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And then verse 11, you have turned for me or you have transformed for me or you have changed for me my mourning into dancing. Weeping may endure. Endure here literally means may come to lodge. Weeping may come to lodge. David is doing something powerful in this psalm. He is personifying weeping and joy. He's wanting us to use our holy imaginations and to, and to imagine weeping as a person, as a character, as a being, and to imagine joy as a person, as a character, as a being. He's wanting us to, to, to give them characteristics, to see them in our mind's eye. So imagine with me for a second what weeping personified might look like. Like if you had to draw a character and it was weeping personified, what do you think she'd look like? Now, because I was raised on Disney VHS tapes, those bubble, those bubble VHS tapes, we had like 15 uh, movies that we just rotated through. Um, and so my mind, oftentimes, my holy imagination goes to Disney animation, like in the 90s. Um, and so when I'm thinking of weeping personified, meditating on this text, this is what I think of. Anybody know the movie? Yes, Beauty and the Beast. I think of this old beggar woman from Beauty and the Beast minus the road. She's wearing her dark hooded robe. She's all hunched over and we are repulsed by her haggard appearance. I remember watching this when, when I was a kid. This part was always kind of boring, but I also always thought it was funny because my little nephew, his last name was Haggard and it was talking about how she was so ugly and haggardly and I was like, ha your last name means ugly. <laughs> And then it got to the good part. Sorry about that, Justin. I love you. Um, but she has this haggardly appearance that we're repulsed by. And like the prince in the movie, what do we want to do? We want to turn her away. We want to close the door on weeping. Say, shut out the morning. Refuse the sackcloth. Weeping, pain, grief. You are not welcome to come and lodge here. But what if, what if we like the prince, what if we are failing to realize something? What if we are failing to realize that sorrow is joy disguised? That sorrow is joy disguised. And if we would allow the weeping and the pain to come in, if we would allow it to sit by the fireside, if we would take the Romans 5 approach and say, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for, then by morning, we would discover that the old woman's ugliness has melted away and has exposed radiant joy, radiant joy. What if we, what if we realized that sorrow is often joy disguised? McLaren writes in his commentary on, on Psalm 30, that sorrow is joy disguised. If it is to be accepted, it's what Jesus, he, he, he accepted the anguish that he was feeling in the garden. If the will submit, he submitted his will to the Father's will, not my will, but yours be done. If the heart let itself be untwined or undone, that its tendrils may be coiled closer round the heart of God, then the transformation is sure to come. The transformation is sure to come and joy will dawn on those who have done rightly by their sorrows. I think so often we're wanting God to just take the pain away, but we forget that God is in the transformation business. The very first miracle that he did was turning, transforming water into wine, wine representing joy. Have you done right by your sorrows? Have you done right by them? Have you invited the men to feel so that you can go to the Lord and saying, God, I know that, that, that you didn't do this, 
but you allowed it and this pain that I'm feeling, God, whatever, whatever you want to do here, I submit my will to yours. I submit my wills to yours. Have you, have you done rightly by your sorrows? Or have you minimized them? Have you denied them? Have you rationalized, intellectualized them away? I'm not talking about just accepting sickness or accepting depression. I'm talking about not, not minimizing what the pain that you're feeling, the weeping that, that you need to do so that it can be transformed into joy. He says, it will not be a joy like what the world calls joy, loud voiced, boisterous, ringing with idiot laughter, but it will be pure and deep and sacred and permanent. Joy will dawn on those who have done rightly by their sorrows. If you find yourself doubting Jesus's capacity to transform your sorrow into dancing, I just want to remind you of who Jesus is. This is from one of my favorite pages in my favorite book, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. He says at the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He could create matter from the energy that he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, eliminate unfruitful trees without saw or ax. He only needed a word. Saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He's the smartest man who's ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of human history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in human life, including your heart, including your grief, including the pain that you're feeling. He has the best information on it and he knows how to transform that water into wine, how to transform that pain into joy, how to transform that weeping into dancing. Jesus accepted the pain of the cross. His will was submitted. He let his heart be undone so that the strings of his heart could be wrapped even more tightly to the heart of his father. And Hebrews tells us that his pain and grief were transformed into joy. Hebrews 12, two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cup of suffering that he was asking his father about in the garden was transformed into a cup of joy, into a cup of joy. Rick Renner writes, the joy set before him. What was it? What was the joy that was set before him? What transformed? The joy set before him was the empty throne at the right hand of the Father that was reserved for him once the victory was complete. Upon that throne, all enemies would be his footstool and he would commence the next part of his high priestly ministry to intercede for everyone who would ever come to him in time of need. The joy set before him was this royal priestly ministry to us to us so that we could come to him in the middle of our darkest nights and say, I need you. I need your grace and I can't do this. And I, I, I physically can't do this. I'm hurting so much. I can't, I can't handle any more pain, any more hurt. But because he took the cup of suffering and it was transformed into a cup of joy, he's seated. He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us and we can come to him and receive grace and mercy in time of need. 
Jesus is inviting you to a Psalm 30 reality today, a reality in which weeping may endure for a season. It may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. But understand that he can't transform what you trivialize, that he can't heal what you hide. He can't dethrone what you deny. He cannot redeem what you rationalize. He can't attend to what you avoid. He can't walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death if you keep running to catch the sun. Henry Nouwen says, we tend to stay away from mourning and dancing. Too afraid to cry, too shy to dance. We become narrow-minded complainers, avoiding pain and also true human joy. While we live in a world subject to the evil one, we belong to the Lord. We do live in a world subject to the evil one where we're going to experience heartache and loss, but we belong to God. Let us mourn, let us dance. Let us mourn, let us dance. I believe the Holy Spirit's inviting us to lower our defense mechanisms today, to trust God with our grief, to welcome weeping, knowing that it will be transformed into joy unspeakable, into a hope that doesn't disappoint. If you would stand your feet. I'm gonna invite our altar ministry team to come down. Last August, when I began to map out the series for the year, and I saw Mother's Day weekend, oh wow, that's gonna be the week that we talk about grief and loss. Maybe we should break from the series and do like a happy Mother's Day message. But the Lord said, no. Holy Spirit said, leave it. Because there's a lot of pain associated with Mother's Day. Maybe that's you today. You came in here like, I gotta hide all my pain and minimize my pain that this is a really hard day for me because my mom's not here. This is my first day without my mom or I have a bad relationship with my mom. Or I'm gonna go in there and here's my theory. I'm just gonna rejoice with all the other mamas and not think about the fact that I had a dream last year that this would be the Mother's Day where finally my infertility struggles are over and I'm either pregnant or I have a baby, but no baby, not pregnant. And there's very real pain that you're feeling or trying maybe not to feel on this Mother's Day. I believe that God wants to transform that pain into joy, pure, steadfast, unshakable, joy. Maybe you're a single mom in here today and that's real hard for you because you don't have that husband in your life that's organizing the day, that's making sure that the kids, you know, shower you with praises or make you a card or take you out to lunch or whatever that looks like and you're just, it's a painful day. I know there's a lot of pain represented in this room Maybe it's tied to motherhood. Maybe it's completely unrelated to Mother's Day. Wherever you're at, I believe that God wants to touch that pain, transform that pain into joy, into wine. But you gotta bring it to Him today. So as we go back into worship, if you're here and you're dealing with pain, come down to the altars. Even if the altars begin to fill up and you're like, ah, everybody's praying with somebody. Form a line. It's okay. We'll wait. We want to pray with you. God wants to minister to your heart. So Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray that a sensitivity would just fall on this room, that we would be so sensitive to your voice, to what you're wanting to do in this moment. 
pray that defense mechanisms would be lowered. And I pray that instead of hustling and and putting our defenses up in the future, God, that we would hustle to be by you and to be by your side and to be real with you and share our heart with you so that you can minister and transform our weeping into joy. I pray for every person in this room, anyone who needs ministry, whether it's healing in their body, whether it's somebody to agree with you over a prodigal child, whatever it is, I pray that you would just stir people to response, to be sensitive and to respond to what you're doing. Holy Spirit, draw your people to the altars. Help us to seal this word in our heart and to leave different and changed in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.